We turn to your holy word, and we thank you so much for the gospel accounts of the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord. As we read your word, uh, the spirit within us just shouts out, this is true, this is true. And I pray, God, that you would transport us back those 2,000 years ago there at the pavement where Jesus stood in all of his innocence against wicked, wicked men. And he put up with all of that humiliation and all of that injustice in order to make us just. So we bless you for the gospel account of the Jesus suffering under Pontius Pilate. And we pray, God, that you would transform us and change us as a result of knowing more about your love for us this day as we look at this account. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Please do turn to Mark chapter 15, verses 1 through 15. We've probably got about four more, maybe three more sermons in the gospel account of Mark. We will finish that about when all of our college students come back uh, there in the middle of August here. Uh, and we're going to be looking, of course, at the account of Jesus standing before Pontius Pilate. This was a significant event. This was something that had to happen in order for Jesus to be able to fulfill Old Testament uh, scriptures. And as we look at Mark 15 through 1 through 15, we're really just going to break it down in two different portions today. We're going to see Pilate's interaction with Jesus in verses 1 through 5 and Pilate's interaction with the crowd in verses 6 through 15. I think you'll find your home group helps uh, insert helpful as you follow along with us. You may want to take some notes with that as we go through the sermon in our home groups that also use uh, perhaps you can use it as your uh, daily devotions as well. So let's uh, go to the, uh, the scriptures here. Uh, we're beginning with Pilate's interaction with Jesus in Mark chapter 1. Uh, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 15, verses 1 through 5. God says, and Mark writes, And early in the morning the chief priests with the elders and the scribes and the whole council immediately held a consultation. And binding Jesus, they led him away and delivered him up to Pilate. And Pilate questioned him, Are you the king of the Jews? And answering, he said to him, It is as you say. And the chief priest began to accuse him harshly. And Pilate was questioning him again, saying, Do you make no answer? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further question, so that Pilate was amazed." Okay, so you got the whole council. Again, the council is the Sanhedrin. We have just uh, looked at the, court, the trial of Jesus had before the Sanhedrin and all of the, all of the illegal things that were done in that trial, meeting at night, meeting before Sabbath, bringing out uh, charges against person when, when the judge was not supposed to do that, uh, the abuse that he suffered at the hands uh, of, the, uh, of the chief priest and that sort of thing here. So we have kind of a, we're at daybreak now. It's probably near about 5 a.m. The Sanhedrin reconvenes here, uh, and in the meantime, Jesus has probably been receiving further abuse at the hands uh, of his captors here. Uh, and now they've got, a, they've got an issue here. They've got to reconvene, so they've got to figure out their strategy for the next step. And we see a transition here. We see a transition from Jesus being tried and held captive by the Jews to moving towards being tried and held captive by the Gentiles. And this is necessary for a number of reasons that we will, we will look at here. So they're moving towards him, and they bind him. Now, you remember in the garden, when they came up and they arrested Jesus in the garden, he will, willingly went with them. He is not fighting. He's not protesting. His big trial was, uh, was wrestling in prayer with God there in the garden of Gethsemane. 
once God said, no, we're not going to del- I'm not going to deliver you. This is something we've decided upon. You've got to can- continue to go. Many of the temptations that Jesus has experienced are over with. He is now, he is, he is set towards the cross and he knows this needs to be fulfilled. Uh, so he just go- goes with such a calm, calm demeanor and, and with no wrath, no vengeance, no bitterness. He faces the trial that God the Father has laid before him. But they bind him, even though he's surrounded by guards and everything else, they bind him because they want him to look like a criminal. You ever seen some of these um, some of the, uh, trials in these other countries where they will put the accused in a cage there in the courtroom? I mean, even if the guy's innocent, there's probably something wrong with him. We need to make him feel guilty because he's in a cage, right? That's exactly what they're doing here. Is they're making him look like a criminal. They're buying him. They're taking him away. They're delivering him to Pilate. Now, uh, this is still early in the morning. And to give you kind of a sense of how these things work, basically the Romans would conduct business from sunrise and if you're Roman aristocracy, as was Pilate, about mid-morning, they're done with business and they just enjoy leisure for the, the rest of the day. So they're starting here at basically at the crack of dawn. Uh, Pilate is ready. He's awake. I'm really kind of mesmerized with that because I don't know the Ethiopians have invented coffee yet. And you think, can you imagine waking up and going straight into a trial? But that's what he did uh, so, then, so that he can have, pursue leisure uh, later on here. Uh, Pilate, of course, is normal, his normal residence is in Caesarea, and you can still go to Caesarea and see the place where Pilate's uh, uh, residence would have been. But he would always, uh, often come to Jerusalem during the major feast for political reasons so that he could meet with some of the other politicians who were also coming in town. But also that would have been the time for unrest. That would have been the time when a rebellion would have started because Jerusalem was swelled to over, over capacity with all of the pilgrims coming in. So he's there here. He's probably lodged in Herod's palace. This uh, praetorium is probably uh, in Herod's uh, palace. Uh, but notice, but you need to know this too, is while this is the first interaction we have between Pilate and Jesus, Jesus is not a stranger to Pilate. Uh, remember, when they came and arrested him, according to the gospel accounts, there were Romans were also present in that arresting party, in that mob that came to drag Jesus out of the Garden of Gethsemane. So those Romans would have had to have been released probably by Pilate. Also, Pilate, it's his job to know what's going on in Judea. So on Monday, he would have been very aware of the triumphant entry. So he's not a stranger to who this Jesus is, but this is the first time we have a recorded uh, meeting of him. Now, to help us a little bit, we're going to look at some of the other gospel accounts as we have been doing. Mark, Mark is uh, he's very male. He, he's very minimalist of the things he writes here. He wants to kind of keep it to a minimum. He's always kind of going on to the, to the next point here. But John gives us a little bit more of a description here, and I want to pick up here with John chapter 18, beginning in verse 28 to kind of fill in some of what was going on between the, the interaction between Jesus and with, uh, with Pilate. And they led Jesus before Caiaphas into the praetorium, and, he was, uh, and it was early, and they themselves did not enter the praetorium in order they might not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. Pilate therefore went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, If this man were not an evildoer, we would have not delivered him up to you. Pilate therefore, notice they didn't answer the question. (laughs) Pilate therefore said to them, take him yourself and judge him according to your law. The Jews said, we are not permitted to put anyone to death. 
that the word of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke, signifying of what kind of death he was about to die. So, so the Sanhedrin wanted to kill Jesus, but the Sanhedrin was not allowed to kill people. So they needed somebody else to kill Jesus, so let's work it out with the Romans. And that's what's happening here. Because Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb's got to die. So for the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, this is all, God is working providentially out all of the, the, to the mo- most minor details of this confrontation, of this delivering up over to the Romans here. So, so he's got to die. Jews can't kill him, so he's got to die to the Romans. But there's more to that, more than that. How did Jews execute somebody? According to Old Testament scripture and according to historical practice, how did they kill somebody who was a murderer or whatever who was uh, guilty of capital crime? Did they crucify him? No. They stoned him to death, didn't they? They would hit him with rocks, then they would throw a big rock on top of him and crush him to death until he was, he was dead. All right? Well, if you're going to die like that, you're going to have broken bones, which is counter to what scripture says. None of his bones will be broken. And Scripture also says, Isaiah 53, He was pierced through for our transgressions. Psalm 22, They pierced my hands and my feet. Those were written hundreds of years before crucifixion was even known in Judea. So Jesus not only had to die, had to go to the Romans, He had to die by being pierced, which is the way the Romans did it, not the Jews. So they deliver Him over to... uh, to Pilate, you know, and, and just note, everybody hates a religious hypocrite. Look what these, uh, this account of John uh, says about the Sanhedrin. They didn't want to enter into Pilate's Gentile headquarters so they wouldn't be defiled for the Passover. They're so concerned about the, the minute keeping of the Mosaic law in regards to their religious... They're willing to deliver over an innocent man. They're willing to put up false witnesses. They're willing to, uh, to establish a kangaroo court. They're willing to, uh, to do just about anything to murder this poor innocent man. Oh, but they don't want to be defiled. Sad. That's the spirit of legalism that is just permeating uh, this culture at the time. Now, Pilate, give you a little background here on Pilate because it really matters. It's interesting, if you look at our Apostles' Creed, you remember? What does Apostles' Creed said? He was born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate. There's only two people actually mentioned, other than the Lord, only two people that are actually mentioned in the Apostles' Creed. Mary, of course, the mother of Jesus, which is certainly appropriate, but then Pilate. It is significant that he suffered here under Pontius Pilate. So who is Pilate? We'll give you a little bit of background. Pilate uh, actually was the prefect of this area from A.D. 26 to 37. He had the longest tenure of any prefect uh, in Judea of the 14 different prefects. It, It was a pretty long tenure. It was a hard place to rule. This was not the plum. Okay, yeah, if you really wanted to make it in the political world of Rome, you would have wanted to go, go to be the prefect of Athens or, or, of, uh, or of Alexandria or somewhere like that, but not Judea. This is the backwaters. This is, uh, this is not a high-level office. This is sort of like if you're mili- in the military, you're, you're stationed in Iceland, you know, or something like that. Uh, gee, I hope we don't have any Icelandic people here today. We're not on lines. We don't have to worry about, about that. that. <clears throat> So anyway, anyway Pilate, Pilate comes in, in but, but, but Pilate, Pilate is insensitive. And, and, and if there's anything you need to be with the Jews, is sensitive. I mean, uh, Jesus was insensitive, and they killed him, right? 
So it's a couple of things that Pilate did. First of all, he came in Jerusalem with the soldiers bearing the emperor's image on their shields. And he displayed those shields right next to the temple. Well, the Jews have a problem with idols. And they saw that emblem of the emperor's bust face as an idol. And that really, really offended them. You, you see this in a lot of Muslim countries today even where children are not allowed to play with a stuffed animal because that's an idol. Uh, and they, they had a real hard time with those shields. So they went to Caesarea and protested for five days. Pilate takes them into an arena and he says, and, and he tells them, well, we're going to kill all of you if you don't leave me alone and quit protesting. And they pulled down their togas and they, they said, we'll gladly bear our necks, you know, to, to stop this disgrace. And Pilate backed off. He backed off. He said, okay, we'll remove the shields. Uh, he realized they had gotten to a point of impasse and they actually won that one. Uh, Pilate, to his credit, uh, built a 23-mile-long aqueduct. You can still see remnants of this aqueduct left there, bringing fresh water into Jerusalem. That's a great thing. I mean, does anybody here not like fresh water? Okay. The problem is he used the temple money to do it. Can you imagine the mayor of Anderson coming in and going into our collection plate and saying, we're going to put some new pipes on Main Street? I mean, we would have a problem with that, right? So he goes, takes money out of the temple, he builds this aqueduct, people go on protest, but he's not going to lose this battle. He tells the soldiers to attack the protesters, the soldiers get out of hand, they slay a bunch of them, and then a bunch of people are trampled to death. Then we have this, um, something that we don't see in the historical accounts, but it's a reference in Luke chapter 13, where Pilate, uh, the Galileans were going up to offer in Jerusalem, and he mixes their blood with their, with their sacrifices. And then there is a nondescript Samaritan uprising that Pilate uh, violently subdued, and that eventually got him fired by uh, Caligula. Uh, so uh, he was basically just inflexible in many ways. So Pilate is sort of the he, he he's sort of the poster child Gentile authority. We're we're going to remind you just how powerful Rome is every time you turn around, and you really need to be afraid of us. And that's exactly who God intended to hand his son over to because that is the fulfillment of all the scriptures. You remember, go back to the Old Testament. You remember the, the scapegoat? The scapegoat, the sins of the people will be laid upon the head of the scapegoat and then the scapegoat will be sent outside the camp to carry the sins of the people away. Jesus is the scapegoat. The sins of the people are going to be laid, uh, placed, placed, uh, placed upon him. He's going to be sent outside the gate to die. It fulfills Psalm 22. Dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. According to John chapter 19, verse 13, Jesus uh, uh, was tried before Pilate here at a place called the Stone Pavement. When you go to Israel... Uh, they, they, they will tell you that we're going to go to a place where if, it's not, if, if this event did not happen exactly at this place, it happened real close to here. The stone pavement is one of those places they know exactly where it is. And some of us, a few years ago, when we were in Jerusalem, went to the stone pavement there, and I was able to read a devotion from the very spot where Jesus stood before Pilate. Folks, we do not follow cleverly devised tales. This is an historical account of the trial of the Son of God. And there are certain places you can go to that are exactly what the gospel accounts describe here. 
Pilate asked him to question him, are you the king of the Jews? The uh, reason why he's asking that is uh, we understand here the accusation that the Jews brought to Pilate uh, from Luke. Uh, we found this fellow perverting the nation, forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying he himself is a Christ, a king. Okay, so that's, what's, that's what they're saying. Now, now, that's not what they accused him of in their trial. Their trial was an accusation of blasphemy. Pilate didn't care about blasphemy. Just stick another god up there. Who cares? We worship a bunch of gods anyway. I'm sure we got room for another one. He could care less about blasphemy. They had to make him look like a, a, a brigand, a, a rebel, someone who was going to be a threat to Rome. So they say they lie. They say he says you're not supposed to taxes. Jesus said actually you should pay taxes. So they come up here and they, they, they lay this accusation that he, he's a rival king. He is a threat to Caesar. So, Jesus, so Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews here? He's really kind of making a statement with a, with a question here. And what's Jesus' response? It is as you say. Now, he just, he's not responding to all this other stuff. He says, it is as you say. Yes, I am. I am the king of the Jews. Well, you don't look like one. Well, I am the king of the Jews. Notice here the, chief, the drama involved here that, that Mark even brings up. The chief priests were beginning to accuse him harshly. Can't you just see this, uh, just this, this spewing bitterness of the Sanhedrin, you know, pointing fingers to him. He does this and he does that and, da, 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 and just the anger. And you compare that to the calm, the quiet, the decorum, the peace of our Lord as he stands there being harshly uh, railed against, slandered before their court. So he, uh, the, the, the emotions are being whipped up here, right? They're being whipped up here. You ever given a deposition? You ever, uh, uh, a deposition, I think you're going to be, if you've been called into uh, to serve as a witness in a trial, they'll ask you to give a deposition. And I gave one some years ago when, uh, when I was a consultant with the Department of Ed. I mean, lots of years ago. And uh, one of the, the, the attorney for the Department of Ed said, now, don't let that lawyer get your emotions going. Because you want to keep calm. When you give a deposition, you want to keep calm and just kind of give the facts and everything. And he's going to try to get your emotions locked in because what happens then? Well, you just kind of open up a little bit more, don't you? you know? so, so I'm in there. Don't worry about me. I, I am really good at this kind of thing, even though I've never done it. So I get in there within 10 seconds. That guy had me all defensive and getting my emotions going. I didn't really didn't have anything to do with me. I was just serving as a kind of a testimony. It was amazing how fast a lawyer can get your emotions going. Not Jesus. Not Jesus. He is so far above his emotions determining his character. And it's just an amazing picture. And to the point here, it, it actually mesmerizes Pilate. He, he he, 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 cannot, he cannot believe that they're not, he's not answering all these different accusations because we would try to pick on each one of the things they say and then try to address each one of them. He just stays there calm. Why does he do that? Well, that is also, as we looked last week, a fulfillment of Holy Scripture, right? Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before his shearers, so he did not open his mouth. Amazing. And the result was Pilate was amazed. You know, when you can remain calm in the storm, it will amaze people. And if you're a Christian, you should be able to remain calm in the storm. Why? Because you're 
father is the one who's in charge of the storm, right? Isaiah 42, I just think this is such a wonderful fulfillment here. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not exchange. He is not going to get in a shouting match with these evil people. Now, are you noticing this, that Pilate is starting to sympathize here with Jesus? He is looking at this good, noble man. He has a sense, and he knows that there's just jealousy and envy on the other party, and he knows everyone. He can name every member of the Sanhedrin. He knows these people, and he knows how they can be. And he's looking at the difference here, and you can start seeing some, some, some of the sympathy. So he looks for a way out. And that's where we come to Pilate's interaction with the crowd, verses 6 through 15. Now at the feast, he used to release for them any one prisoner whom they requested. <clears throat> and a man named Barabbas had been imprisoned with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the insurrection. And the multitude went up and began asking him to do as they had been, accompl had been accomplished to do for them. And Pilate answered them, saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he was aware that the chief priests had delivered him up because of envy. But the chief priests stirred up the, the multitude and asked them to release Barabbas for them instead. And answering again, Pilate said, saying back to them, Then what shall I do with whom you call the king of the Jews? And they shouted back, Crucify him! But Pilate was saying to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! And wishing to satisfy the multitude, Pilate released Barabbas for them. And after having Jesus scourged, he delivered him up to be crucified. So Pilate knows what's going on. He's, he's, he, he, he's an astute politician. He's figured it out. So he hatches this idea of a prisoner exchange. This will work. We've done this in the past. Jesus, obviously, they must love Jesus, so they'll, they'll, they'll switch, switch it out. We'll do a prisoner exchange here. Uh, he, uh, Mark goes on to describe Barabbas as one who was imprisoned with the insurrectionists who committed murder in the insurrection. Notice he doesn't, def he doesn't define what this insurrection is, and the assumption is, is that his audience knew this insurrection. Oh, yeah, that insurrection. This is what Barabbas uh, was part of that here. He was a murderer. And Pilate goes out. It's, it's, you would assume this would have worked, right? And he, and he does this partly because he knows the evil on the other side. He says that they had delivered him up for envy. En envy is probably one of the most terrifying sins we can have. And it's almost promoted in our culture, right? Uh, how many of y'all got an iPhone because yours was outdated and embarrassing compared to somebody else that you knew that had an iPhone? You've got to have that new iPhone. got to have that 12, that 11. <laughs> Only nerds have an 11. I'm probably not helping the fact that you have an 11 right now. But we're always doing that, right? Envy, envy, envy. You've got to keep up with the Joneses. You've got to have better this and better that and, and this sort of thing. Let me define for you envy. Envy is not really just jealousy. It's almost jealousy on steroids and, and on the offensive. It's a feeling of discontented or resentful longing aroused by someone else's possessions, qualities, or luck. Now, again, that may be the first time the word luck's ever been used from this pulpit, but I'm, I'm, I'm reading a definition. It's not so much that you want what he has as you resent him having it. That is dark, folks. That is demonic. 
And I'm telling you one thing, it'll kill a church. That spirit of bitterness defiles many. If you're going to be that way, you're going to be more like the Sanhedrin, not like Jesus. So go to school on their sin, so you won't have to go in school on your own sin here. They delivered him up for envy, uh, and then he, he decides to start, uh, he starts to go to the crowd. But he doesn't realize that the Sanhedrin is working the crowd. They're manipulating their emotions and this kind of thing. Now, just kind of an interesting point here. Some of the Old New Testament manuscripts actually give us Barabbas' first name. Do you know what Barabbas' first name is? Jesus. Jesus. Jesus Barabbas. Right? So, I mean, yeah, and this is a little bit, this is, this, I'm, I'm stretching the point a little bit to make the illustration here. Which one did they choose? They chose Barabbas. They chose Jesus Barabbas, not Jesus Messiah. What was Barabbas in jail for? He was a political insurrectionist. The people chose that over the Messiah that God had sent. Isn't this in keeping with the misunderstanding the apostles had so many times about what Messiah would do? Messiah's going to come in. He's going to overthrow the Romans. He's going to rebuild Solomon's glory. He's going to have the power and the majesty of David, and the kingdom of God is going to be on earth. We're all... We do it in America in more subtle political ways, but this is always a tendency. And the people here wanted that they wanted their kind of Jesus, not the kind of Jesus that God offered. And boy, did they ever trade down? Did they ever trade? But we, if we stick to "Thus saith the Lord," we'll be safe. So, for political expediency, he does this, folks. Again, just go to school on Pilate's sin. So you won't have to on your own. Proverbs 29, 25. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. He feared the crowd. He feared the Sanhedrin, so he killed an innocent man. 1 Thessalonians 2, 4. So we speak not to please men, but to please God who tests our heart. So Pilate knows Jesus is innocent. The Sanhedrin is crying for his blood. Now they got the crowd crying for his blood. And he switches a known murderer, a, a, a infamous sinner, for an innocent man who did nothing but heal people and teach them the truth. There's a great illustration again. This is not the point of the passage, but it's an illustration of substitutionary atonement. Y'all, the, the, the doctrine of Christianity lives and dies on the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. That is, if you're a believer... Christ died for you. He paid the penalty for your sin so you wouldn't have to. Okay? And I emphasize that a lot because that is so often attacked. People don't believe they're sinners. They don't believe they need grace because they never did anything wrong. They just make mistakes every now and then. And, you know, it, just, it cracks me up that people, people say, oh, Christians, they think they're better than everybody else. Not the Christians I know. We know we're worse than everybody else. That's why we need grace, right? substitutionary atonement. Could there be a better example in Scripture here? Well, there are probably, you know, Abraham offering up Isaac and the lamb being caught in the thicket is a great example of substitutionary atonement. But the sinner murderer Barabbas is substituted for Jesus Christ, the pure, undefiled Son of God. You know another interesting thing? What's Barabbas' first name? Jesus, you know what his last name means? Son of the Father. 
son of the father. I don't know that Barabbas ever got saved. He sure should have. <laughs> I don't know if he ever got saved. But his name is Jesus, son of the father. And that's what happens every time there's substitutionary atonement. You go from being a murderer and a brigand and an insurrectionist to being a son of the father. He had Jesus scourged, which, of course, was a prelude, trying to weaken. It was, it was a torturous event. I won't go into details. Uh, people like going into details on this kind of thing. The gospel writers don't go into a lot of details. I mean, we'll spare you the gore there. But he delivers him up to be crucified. One commentator says, Judging Jesus to be unworthy either of a stand on principle or a show of force, Pilate opts to stand down, thus consigning Jesus to routine crucifixion. Again, if we uh, look at the, the account of Matthew, we know at this point in time, uh, according to Matthew 27, Pilate took water and washed his hands in the front of the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See it to it yourselves. He's actually picking up a, a Jewish practice here. I am washing my hands. I am innocent of this man. You found him guilty. I did not. Isn't it amazing how many times he proclaims Jesus' innocence? I think it's at least three times in this account, the innocence of Jesus Christ. And do you remember what the response of the crowd was at that point in time? I'm innocent of this man's blood. Do you remember what they say? And all the people said, His blood shall be on us and our children. His blood shall be on us and our children. Boy, well, that was prophetic. Because the Romans, 40 years after this, turned Jerusalem into a parking lot. And it's, it's estimated that a million Jews died during that insurrection. I, I, I want to <clears throat> give another application here. Because as you read this, and as I read this, I, I'm just mesmerized by Pilate. He, he knows the right thing to do, but he doesn't do it. And he had time to think about it. He is, he is to, supposed to be the defender of the Roman judicial system. He has got some authority. He could have gotten away with letting Jesus go. He could have done like they did with Paul where they surrounded him with cavalrymen and took him to Caesarea. He could have done a bunch of different things. But he caved. He caved. Why did he cave? Well, if you will, allow me just a little bit to kind of give you a little bit of philosophical background because, folks, our culture is run by pilots now. It's run by pilots and, and, and let me just kind of go all the way back to Augustine. Augustine's on our mind. We have an Augustine Bible study on, on Monday nights. Uh, Augustine's famous works are City of God and Confessions. And in Confessions, it was almost sort of the first um, uh, psychological biography. Uh, Augustine goes through what he's going emotionally and spiritually inside himself and what he's thinking and everything. Augustine had a very interesting story that really was uh, kind of definitive in his life in a lot of ways. He was with a bunch of his friends. There were some pears in a vineyard nearby. Pears in a vineyard. What do you call them? They just have orchards too like apples do? Like they stole that idea from the apples? Okay. A pear orchard. There's pears hanging off. They decide to steal these pears. And what did they do with the pears? They were really hungry, right? Or they really wanted to sell them for the money. Augustine says, no, no, no. I had better pears in my garden, and I didn't need the money. We stole them, and we threw them to the pigs, and we laughed. And what Augustine realized as he was musing over that encounter as a youth, I sin because I'm a sinner. 
I am born into sin, and I love it so. That was the foundational principle of Western civilization. Augustine is considered the, the father of Western civilization. Fast forward to around the year 17, uh, into the 1700s. Jean-Jacques Rousseau writes a book. Rousseau's book is called Confessions. And in that, he's going through some of the same thing Augustine's. He never actually makes the direct connection with Augustine, but it seems to be that, that he was doing that. Rousseau is sort of rejecting his Calvinism. He grew up in Geneva, where Calvin's from, rejecting his historical Calvinism. And he had an encounter. A next-door neighbor by the name of, what's his name? Verat told Rousseau to steal some of his mama's asparagus. You know, it would take two years to grow asparagus. That was a big deal. And it was an asparagus orchard. No, I don't know what it was. Uh, patch. Told him to steal some of his, asparagus, uh, his mama's asparagus because he needed some money and he wanted to sell it. So, uh, so Rousseau goes and he steals his mother's asparagus and he gives it to the next door neighbor. Now, pondering that, as opposed to Augustine who says, I sin because I'm a sinner, Rousseau says, you know, I was actually helping a neighbor, so I really didn't do that, uh, that, anything really that bad. It was actually a good thing. You know, he accomplished the goal of helping the neighbor. He went and made some money off of it. Now, where am I going with this? What Rousseau gets out of that is that I am a, if I sin, it's because of society. It's people like Varent who want to encourage you to sin and, and pressure you to sin. That the native primitive man is good in of himself, but it's the competition within society that makes him bad. In other words, his circumstances are what dictates his sin. Now, he has become the father of the modern age in so many ways. His writings were instrumental in the French Revolution, he had some good stuff, but he had some bad stuff. And, and really, the writings of the Confessions of Rousseau have now eclipsed the writings of the Confessions of Augustine. So that now, when we see looting going on in the streets, we think, well, maybe they didn't really mean to be that way, and they needed this stuff and everything, so it's okay for them to loot. This would have been impossible for previous generations to actually accept, but it's now kind of standard procedure for many of us. Folks, Pilate is the prince of the city of man. And he is in charge of today. Jesus is the king of the city of God. If you're a believer, you are a citizen of that kingdom. So you live your life based upon the principles of Scripture and you recognize you sin because you're a sinner, not because someone else makes you sin. So let's be done with this victim thing, this blame shifting and everything else and recognize the need of God's grace in our own heart. I'm done dealing with pilots. He was a compromiser. Let's go to school on his sin instead of on our own. But when it comes down to it, that question that Pilate asked, what shall I do with him whom you call the king of Jews. That's the question of the age, isn't it? What are you as Christians going to, going to do with your king? And if those of you who are not Christians, you've got to make that decision too. Not making a decision for Christ is making a decision to reject Christ. And in that, you're becoming Pilate. You're choosing a different Jesus, son of the Father, than the one God gave us. Folks, this account 
happened. It actually happened. And Jesus actually suffered this humiliation and all of this for the sake of the elect. Does that not just increase our love for him all the more? So what are we going to do? What are we going to do with the one that's called King of the Jews? Father, we do bless you. Lord, as we sang that wonderful old Methodist hymn, remind us that our chains fell off when we stood and walked and followed thee. God, I remember those chains. I remember those chains. In so many ways, my life before you was almost defined by those chains. Why would we be so foolish to pick up those broken shackles and put them on again? But every time we act like Pilate instead of like Jesus, we do. So I pray, God, that you would help us to go to school on this account, learn from the sin involved, and just to walk forward in hope and glory of being those whom Jesus died for. In Christ's name. Amen.